Before Johnny comes up to speak, we're going to sing one more song together. But before we do that, I'm going to read the passage that Johnny will be speaking from, which is from James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but falls in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And good evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome to to Samuels. Uh, If we haven't met before, my name's Johnny. Uh, I'm the pastor and part of the leadership team here, and it is uh, great to be able to gather together this evening. Please forgive my slightly croakier voice than normal. If things pack in um, over the course of the next few minutes, you'll have to forgive a final uh, point of this sermon being mimed to you. Um, So please do pray that it it sticks um, to the end of of the talk. We're going to spend our next few minutes thinking about that uh, reading um, that that Samuel just read for us, James uh, chapter 2. Before we do that, though, let me um, pray for us and ask for the Lord's help. Let's pray together. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart, says the psalmist, to fear your name. Our God and Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. And we ask this evening that as we study it together, you would please be at work. And by your Holy Spirit, you would unite our hearts, hearts which are so often divided, and make us singly devoted to you. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory, and do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I wonder if you've ever heard anyone being accused of being a glory hunter before. Um, If you haven't come across, uh, the phrase is most often, I think, associated with sports fandom, uh, and most often a negative term. It's it's often used of the uh, football uh, football fan who supports their team for as long as they're winning, and who enjoys basking in the reflected glory of winning cup after cup and title after title. But as soon as things start to get tough, and uh, their team starts to slide down the league, well, the glory hunter quietly slips away. 
and to start to support another team who by chance happened to be winning. Um, as a fan of Air United Football Club, I've rarely been accused of being a glory hunter in sports, but it isn't just related to sports. You can be a glory hunter in lots of different areas. You can be a glory hunter as someone who won't stop talking about their favourite band, their favourite restaurant, their favourite TV show. Not only because they enjoy the music or the food or the TV programme, but who talks about it in order that people come to associate you with the glory of that thing. Almost hoping that the glory of of the band or the restaurant somehow rubs off on you as people come to appreciate it. Glory hunting might be a trait you recognize in others you know, perhaps even something you see in yourself. And this evening, James is going to point a finger at quite a number of us and call us glory hunters. Now, as we'll see for James, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. And in fact, it can be a very good thing indeed. What matters, though, says James, is that we are hunting the right kind of glory. This is the third in our Sunday evening series in the book of James. And we saw two Sunday evenings ago, if you were here, that James is writing to Christians behaving badly in the way they love other people, in the way they speak, in the way they use their money. And one key reason for that bad behavior is that they are what James calls double-minded. I gave a, a couple of proof texts of that the last time. Let me give you another one tonight. James chapter 4, verse 8. We read this. Draw near to God, writes James, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-mindedness is the big problem. People being caught in, in two minds, spiritually speaking. Now, what does that look like? Well, it looks like people saying that they love God on the one hand, but behaving in a way that suggests they don't on the other. And in in James chapter 2, that wider principle of the letter about the danger of double-mindedness is worked out in a real-life scenario. So the Christians to whom James are writing are, by definition, people who follow the Lord of glory. That's what James calls Jesus. Just look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. So they they have faith in the Lord of glory on the one hand, but on the other hand, by the way they treat people, it looks as though they aren't following the Lord of glory, but are instead hunting glory for themselves. And that's a problem, says James, because as people who love the Lord of glory... We are called to love like him. And that's our first heading this evening. Oh, I've skipped on. Forgive me, Donald. That's an awful, awful um, faux pas on my part. If you mind taking us back, that's wonderful. Thank you. As someone who loves the Lord of glory, love like him. Verses 1 to 7. And now, and I wonder if you've ever had the experience of, of meeting someone who, by their very presence, overawed you. Maybe because they were famous. 
uh, or, or because you knew them to be quite powerful. Uh, perhaps they were particularly wealthy or maybe a combination of all of those things. A friend of mine recently told me about the time he had coffee with a man who is a household name the world over. I'm fairly confident everyone in this room will know who he is. I'm not going to name check him, otherwise you'll spend the next 20 minutes thinking about him rather than what we're thinking about. But he is someone who has wielded power, as you or I would struggle to imagine, who is extraordinarily wealthy. And my friend was just delighted to meet him. He said it actually felt a bit surreal to spend time with someone he'd only ever seen on the TV before. But as well as being a a once-in-a-lifetime experience, well, he also said it it felt strangely dangerous. Almost intoxicating, in fact. Because my friend could see the draw of wanting to impress or to please this powerful person. Could see himself quite easily compromising any number of different things in order to please this powerful person. It was almost like a, a drug, is the way he described it. And I wonder, you perhaps can empathize with that experience. It can be intoxicating to rub shoulders with, with people who are wealthy or powerful or influential, and perhaps to hope that some of that that they have will rub off on you. Hey, well, James is, is no stranger <clears throat> to that kind of intoxication. He paints a picture of it for us, actually, in verses 2 to 4. It's a picture of an average Sunday morning in the foyer of a local church. Imagine uh, downstairs, for example. A man approaches the front door wearing a neatly ironed shirt, an expensive-looking suit, and uh, clutching the keys to his brand-new car. And even before he's crossed the threshold of the building, he's been shaken warmly by the hand. Both members of the greeting team are on him like a shot, keen to welcome him. And he's promptly escorted up the stairs and shown to his seat. But a couple of steps behind Mr. Sharp, as we'll come to call him this evening, comes a man clutching not new car keys, but a worn plastic bag containing what looks like all of his earthly possessions, wearing clothes that that look just as worn and tatty too. It looks like he could do with a shave and probably a bit of a wash, given the smell that's coming from him. And whilst the first man, Mr. Sharp, was greeted warmly before he'd even arrived, this second man, Mr. Tatty, is left to find his own way into the foyer, And as he does, he's encouraged to sit downstairs for the course of the morning service, where he'll be able to watch it on the live stream. He'll be much more comfortable here, he's assured. It means he can always nip outside more quickly if he wants a cigarette, goes the logic. Two people who look very different from one another and who are therefore treated very differently from one another. And that distinction is a bad sign says James. Verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? It's very strong language, isn't it? Judges with evil thoughts. And the scene that James paints for us in verses 2 to 4 might feel like a slightly exaggerated version of reality. Very rarely would would a Mr. Sharp and Mr. Tatty arrive one after the other like that and be treated in quite such radically different ways, at least openly. But the principle that that seems illustrating 
Well, it's a lot closer to home than we might think. And, uh, and not just for those of us on a stewarding rota. I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a conversation and um, over the shoulder of the person you're speaking to comes into view someone with whom you would much rather be speaking. Not because you feel keen to, to pass on a word of encouragement or you're just pleased to see them, but because you know that they're a particularly influential person, a charismatic person, a wealthy person. The networking opportunity it would be to, uh, to speak to them stands out. And you know you aren't really paying proper attention to the conversation you're in here and now because speaking with Mr. or Mrs. Sharp on the other side of the room well, it's likely to be far more profitable to you. Perhaps instead you can remember a time when you walked into a Sunday service and noticed an empty seat at the end of a row next to someone with whom conversation well, might be a bit difficult, perhaps even a bit dull. And you see another seat a bit further along the room. This second seat is next to someone who's a bit of a higher flyer in the business world or legal world or education world. But that seat is in the middle of a row. And getting to the seat will involve doing some acrobatics. But despite all of that, well, you can feel yourself limbering up. You make your way to the influential person rather than sitting with someone who can't really offer you anything. And the principle, can you see, is that of glory hunting. It's making distinctions between people based on what they can do for you. James would ask, I think, have you not become judges with evil thoughts? Now, the situation James was writing into seems to have been far more pronounced than the applications I've given so far, actually. It seems that the rich people who were being given seats of honor in the the, the churches to whom James were writing had actually been making life very difficult for Christians and were nonetheless being treated so honorably. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Just read those with me. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? Now, for clarity, James isn't saying there that that, that people who oppose or or oppress Christians should be treated more poorly than those who don't. That's not the case at all. Christians are called to love anyone who would persecute us. But the problem James is pointing out is quite how strange it is to treat a persecutor of the Christian faith far better than someone else simply because of what the persecutor might be able to give you. And yet it is a realistic picture of what we can very often be like, of quite how strong this impulse can be. Our hearts are so often easily won over by visible glory. We gravitate towards impressive people who can do impressive things for us and who might just be able to make us a bit more impressive. It happens all the time in life. It happens regularly in churches. And I'm quite sure that I've done it too. We are glory hunters. Now the problem with all that isn't just that we're hunting glory in itself. It's that if we're Christians, if that's who we claim to follow, we we, we claim to follow Jesus Christ, then we love 
the Lord of glory. That's what James calls Jesus, isn't it? Remember, verse 1, the Lord of glory. Christians follow him. We love him. And that just isn't how the Lord of glory loves. We've got a trailer of that in the final verse of chapter 1. Just look onto that with me, if you will. And we saw that the last time we were here in James, chapter 1, verse 27. A religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. God values the kind of faith in which people who are in need are cared for, are visited, are loved. Why? Well, we read on to chapter 2, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? You see, the Lord of glory loves and pursues inglorious people. People who have nothing to give in return. Who have no particular glory in themselves. That is how God loves. And so if you're going to be single-minded, wholehearted as a follower of this Lord of glory, if you're going to be, in other words, the right kind of glory hunter, well, it's worth asking, do you love like he does? Be a glory hunter by all means. If by hunting glory, you mean following this Lord of glory and his love of inglorious people. Now, it would be a very easy thing for us all to, to, to feel quite guilty at this point as we reflect on how it is that we treat other people. And actually, that, that kind of guilt can be quite a powerful motivator in bringing about fairly rapid change each year. And charitable organizations like Children in Need or, or Comic Relief bank on just that. They show videos of people in various parts of the world who are in real need in order to raise money for them. And it's an effective tactic. They raise millions of pounds every time they do it. But it is worth noting that, that, that James's objective well, it isn't only the sake of the underprivileged person who comes into the building on a Sunday. And in fact, I'm not entirely sure that, that changing Mr. Tatty's situation is even his main concern in, in James chapter 2. His concern is the heart of the Christian doing the greeting. Verse 5, notice he says, Listen, my beloved brothers. He's writing to them as a brother correcting his Christian family for their own good. And so it is worth us reflecting honestly on this type of question. If we love the Lord of glory, do we love like he loves? Not only in our conversations after a church service, but in our home groups. In the, in the kinds of folks we might send a message to, to check in with during the week. And the people we might even bring a meal to in a time of need or, or have into our home for a meal. Do we draw distinctions between the kinds of people who can give us anything in return and those who can't? As someone who loves the Lord of glory, says James, love like him. That's our first point this evening. 
in a way, I met with a, a friend of mine recently, a Christian, whom I hadn't seen in, in quite a while. And after catching up about, about life and family and, and our move as a family to Aberdeen, he asked me a fairly direct question. How are you doing in your battle with sin? He asked me. Uh, the, the forwardness of the question caught me flat aback, if I'm honest. Um, but I thought I would, I would share the joy uh, and, uh, and put you in the same boat this evening. If you're a Christian, and I were to ask you that question tonight, how are you doing in your battle with sin? How would you answer it? Uh, my guess is that a lot of people would cite well, probably quite similar kinds of battles to one another, battles we might face with, with, with pride or with, with lust or with gossip. But I wonder... Where would the need to grow in the kind of people you love feature in that answer? My guess is that for a lot of us, it probably wouldn't feature at all. Because the issue of of who and how we love, well, it can kind of feel like a, a, a bit of a bolt on, really. It's a small fry issue compared to bigger issues of sin we might face. I mean, it isn't often even visible to the naked eye that we treat some people differently than we treat others. It's, it's what one Christian author once called the respectable sin. And yet, despite James's tone, as we've seen, being a gently corrective one, dear br- uh, brothers, he calls them, well, he does want us to see that this is a very serious matter. Uh, and we see that under our second and final heading this evening. As someone who needs mercy from the Lord of Justice. Show mercy like him. Now, uh, James has painted a vivid picture for us in verses 2 to 4 of the uh, Sunday service where the rich man and the poor man come into the church and he's asked us, how are you going to welcome him? Do you love like the Lord of glory loves? But then from verse 8, James takes us from the church foyer into the courtroom. We're witnessing a trial. Only we aren't witnessing it from the viewing gallery, nor are we even members of the jury. The court's standing to trial, and the one on trial is you. The court officer reads out the charge. As the accused, you're on trial today for the crime of adultery. How do you plead? And a great rush of relief washes over you. Well, my Lord, I plead not guilty. I'm no lawbreaker. I've never committed adultery in my life. I mean, I did. I did happen to murder someone on the way over here. But when it comes to adultery, I'm squeaky clean. Now, to that response, the judge is unlikely to say, I'm very sorry for the hassle, sir or madam. You're free to go. No, you might not be guilty of adultery, but he's still going to remand you for lawbreaking, isn't he? That's how lawbreaking works. You only need to break one of them to be in trouble. And James envisages a similar scenario from verses 8 to 13. Just read with me from verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. 
It's all well and good to keep part of God's law, says James, to be partly obedient. But that doesn't mean that breaking another part of it doesn't matter, does it? Of course it does. That's how law-breaking works. Now, why does that courtroom scene suddenly arrive here in James chapter 2? Is this a kind of a random little unit of, of teaching in James, as it's often thought. James is often understood to be a bit of a hodgepodge of different ideas. Well, no. James isn't moving on to address separate issues of adultery and murder here. They're just illustrations, very vivid illustrations he uses to make a point. He's still on the issue of how we treat one another. And he's addressing the notion that how we treat one another may not be that big a deal. That showing partiality, that being the wrong kind of glory hunter, if you like, well, it's a fairly minor infraction, spiritually speaking. The kind of behavior that warrants a slap on the wrist at best. And yet James begs to differ. Verse 9. If you show partiality... You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty in all of it. Now you might think that partiality is no big deal, says James. May not even even have featured in how you would answer how your battle with sin is going. But listen, breaking the law is breaking the law. And, says James, by your partiality... You've broken the law. Now, um, it's worth saying that isn't how people tend to think in our culture generally, is it? People tend to think that, well, bad behavior is graded on a sort of sliding scale. Some bad behavior is particularly bad and worse than other bad behavior. You might have heard someone say that I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad. There are lots of people who've done lots worse things than I've done. And uh, and Christians can think that way too. I actually think that's exactly what James is anticipating in what he says in James chapter 2. No, I don't love my neighbor as myself, as I know I should. But come on, James, it's not that serious. It isn't like I'm committing adultery or, or, or killing anyone. I mean, no one would even know that I was showing favoritism between two different people based on what they could do for me. To which James says... Breaking the law is breaking the law. And you see, the problem that leaves us with is that when it comes to God's perfect law, his law of liberty, as James calls it, all of us have broken it. All of us stand in that dock, rightly condemned before him. And so all that's left in that situation is to plead for mercy. To ask for pardon, for forgiveness. Now, wonderfully, the offer of Jesus is of just that of forgiveness, full and free, to anyone who recognizes our law breaking and asks for his pardon. So, if you're a Christian, rejoice in that this evening. Ask him for his grace and kindness and revel in the fact that he's shown it to you at the cross of Jesus. And if you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian tonight, then do think deeply on that. If this is how sin or law-breaking is defined, then you're in far bigger trouble than you might previously have thought. 
But actually, the point James is really making in James 2 is not quite so much that we should rejoice at mercy that we've been shown if we are Christians or should marvel at the mercy on offer if we're not. The point is, if you realize that you need mercy from God, well, how much mercy have you shown to the person who needed it from you? That's the bottom line in James 2, verses 12 and 13. The, The person with nothing to give you, did you give them something? Care, love, time. And if we didn't, then, well, by what right do we have to claim it for ourselves from God? James is is coming at the same issue, I think, from a different angle. How we love other people really, really matters. If you're a Christian, God has shown you extraordinary mercy. How then can we do anything but show kindness and mercy to other folks who can't give us anything in return? Now, it is very important to note that there are clear evidences, evidences are plenty actually, of of single-minded devotion to God across this church family, not least in this particular area. I say it every time I speak on the issue of love, um, that as a church family, Hebron have blown us away in how kind and gracious and loving folks have been. Members of Hebron loving all kinds of folks in very practical ways and showing no partiality as they do so. So please do be encouraged that there are many, many evidences of this. But whilst it's true, it's always worth heeding James's warning. Because as I mentioned earlier, this is the kind of issue that you might not even spot on the surface. So think about the ways in which we can grow in loving other people as God loves them. Perhaps when we come along to a service on a Sunday, we rarely speak to people other than a select few. Not because we have somewhere else we need to be, or because we're particularly shy. But because speaking to other people can be quite difficult. They can be annoying, or awkward, or a bit of both. And there isn't all that much in it for me. James would say, I think, if you're someone who loves the Lord of glory, will you not love people like he loves them? If you're someone who knows you need God's mercy, his extraordinary kindness, will you not show kindness as he's shown you kindness? Now, in one sense, that's easier said than done. Because it isn't particularly easy in the heat of the moment. And we do need God's help to grow to be more like him. But wonderfully, he does promise to give us that help through his Holy Spirit living within anyone who has trusted in Jesus. And so as we close, well, let's ask him to be at work to be growing us in single-minded devotion to him, growing our hearts to be more like his as we look to love one another. Let's pray together as we close. Our God and Father, we do thank you so very much for these scriptures we've read together in James this evening. 
for the reminder of the extraordinary mercy and love you have for your people. All of whom are undeserving. And so we ask this evening, Lord, that you would please make us more like you. Give us hearts that would love all people, not because of what they can give to us or do for us, but because you love them. Would we please be people who show mercy, who show kindness, who show love, as we too have been shown such love. We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. Do so in Jesus' name. Amen.